Welcome to a special summer episode of 15-Minute History. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. This week, we had a chance to sit down virtually with James D.R. Phillips, author of Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. The book reaches back more than a century before the American founding and traces the origins of constitutional government to the turbulent 17th century in England. It then explains very clearly and concisely how the ideals of the English Revolution inspired America's framers as they won independence from Great Britain and wrote the Constitution that still governs the United States today. James D.R. Phillips studied at the universities of Oxford and Sydney and holds degrees in liberal arts and in law. He has been a successful mergers and acquisitions attorney for more than 30 years and is a visiting lecturer at the University of Sydney's Law School. He held leadership positions at two law firms and is now a non-executive director of several organizations, including a leading Australian public policy research institute. Phillips first read the American Constitution in school and began reading about the English Revolutionary and American colonial periods in 2005. We're joined today by Mr. James Phillips. He is the author of a book called Two Revolutions and the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. So welcome, James. We really appreciate you joining us today. Morning, John. Perfect to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about your background before we start digging into the book. Where did you study? Where are you from? And what kind of drew you to the topic of constitutional government and how our system here in the United States, the system in the UK and in other parts of the world kind of came about? Well, I studied at the universities of Oxford and Sydney. And um, I practiced for a long time as a lawyer, mergers and acquisitions principally, Uh, but I've always long had a a deep interest in history because I think it helps us both to understand the context of the modern world, but also how to think about complex sort of multi-cause factors in history, if you like. And and having a legal background isn't bad too in in marshalling evidence and, and making an argument. And it's particularly relevant to this topic, actually, because some of the general historians who write about the American Constitution, I don't think quite get some of the legal concepts involved. And since constitutionality was really at the heart of the revolution, that's very useful. Absolutely. So what happened was I stepped back from working the horrific hours that a mergers and acquisitions lawyer works a, a few years ago, long wanted to write a, a book on history to marshal my interest and, and skills for that purpose. And I wanted to write about something of consequence. The trouble with that is that a number of books have been written about things of consequence. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think it's really important to try to understand the modern world and to understand the the big drivers of the modern world. And the American Constitution is one of those. And I actually thought there was a way of approaching the story, which isn't the usual way of of approaching it. Because what normally happens, as you know, is people focus on the uh, revolutionary period and particularly the latter end of the revolutionary period, if you like, the period from the Declaration to the Constitutional Convention. The problem with that approach is this. You could say that from the time that the British started tightening the screws on colonial America in um, 1763, that um, there was strong resistance from America from the beginning, which grew over time, because the American colonies had a distinct perception of their rights and their constitution. You know, it's interesting. The phrase, our constitution, is actually used in the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And that's 1776. Well, there's no such thing as a written American constitution in 1776. There are some colonial charters, although most of them have been displaced because most of the colonies are crown colonies at the time. 
what did Jefferson and the, the committee in Congress mean when they used the phrase our constitution? They clearly had a perception of a distinct set of American political rights and conventions. So to understand those and where they came from, in my opinion, you need to go back to the founding of the colonies because of the unique circumstances of their founding, which very much influenced American political culture. And you need to consider the revolutionary English century, the 1600s. You know, the Americans got rid of King George III in 1776, but the English had twice in the 1600s got rid of a king. Charles I, they tried and executed for tyranny, a word that appears in the Declaration of Independence, but not in the Declaration of Rights of 1688, uh, which many people treat as a progenitor of the Declaration of Independence, but it doesn't charge the king with tyranny. The charges against Charles I do in 1649. And then in 1688, the English have their second revolution, the so-called English or Glorious Revolution. And at the same time, there are rebellions in New England, Maryland, and New York. So my contention is you need to understand the political tradition that came out of the unique circumstances of America from the founding and the Republican and rebellious revolutionary English 1600s in order to understand the political culture of, in the American colonies at the threshold of the revolutionary period. So what I do in my book is I, I, I tell the full story. I tell it fairly concisely in only about 60,000 words, but I try to put it in its, um, the Constitution in its deeper context. Hmm. It was impressive how, when I read the book, how much is in there, how dense it is. And yes, and yet it is so easy to read. It's not, you know, covered in legal terminology or anything like that. And I I really appreciated how well you were able to synthesize that whole period down to, as you said, a, a fairly short monograph. A lot of the English Revolutionary period, of course, traces its origins back to Magna Carta, the Charter of 1215. We had a uh, an interview last month with an English historian who who also addressed Magna Carta. It was interesting, the different perspectives that you have within historiography on that document. He said in his interview that it was basically just a failed peace treaty that went into the bin seven weeks after it was signed, given that so many of the English monarchs after King John did not follow it. So can you tell us a little bit about where the ideas of limited government and the king being responsible to parliament how it took 400 years for England to really embrace that from 1215 to when they finally said, okay, enough when it came to the tyranny of Charles I. Yeah, well, that's a a big question, but let's have a go. And, and, you know, it's really interesting. I went about um, maybe seven years ago or something to the site of where Magna Carta was signed or at Runnymede, just Mm -hmm. west of London on the Thames. It's actually thought that it was probably signed on an island in the middle of the river. And it was sort of an important place because at that time, the the Danish influence was still strong north of the Thames and Anglo-Saxon south of the Thames. So in a sense, that area was sort of the fulcrum of the the kingdom. But what's interesting when you visit the site at Runnymede is that there's, at least seven years ago, there was a monument erected by the American Bar Association, Hmm. but the English and the British seem to display complete indifference to the site. There's very little there. And Interesting. Completely, completely neglected. And the reason I mention that is that it doesn't entirely surprise me. I, I, I haven't heard your interview. But, you know, the American tradition looks back at Magna Carta as a foundational document and it seeks to see some sort of continuity 
much more strongly than the than the English and the British do. But that's not surprising since they have no idea about their constitution, partly because it's unwritten and partly because they sort of just take it for granted. As a side note, you know, my opinion is that the EU and Brexit was largely a, a British constitutional issue and crisis, mm-hmm. but they kind of never realised that because they're so constitutionally unaware. But that's another topic. <laughs> the um, I think the answer is that um, it is... So what was Magna Carta? Magna Carta was some barons and aristocrats standing up to the king and saying, we have these rights against you. It wasn't really about the rights of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. It was about the rights of landowners and aristocrats against the king. So it did encapsulate the concept of a limited monarchy without absolute powers, let's say. Is there a straight line from there to, say, the trial and execution of Charles I in 1649, after which the English establish a republic that lasts for 12 years? No, there's no straight line. You know, there were ups and downs in the assertion of royal power through that period and and the the rights and powers of of parliament. But still, what is interesting about it is that, you know, England didn't succumb to being an absolute monarchy in the way that, say, France did. Mm -hmm. So there was throughout the period some tension between the uh, aristocrats and, and then increasingly from the time of, say, Elizabeth, you have the power not only of the landholders, but also of the City of London and the merchants and the financiers. I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is it's easy to imagine that because the British Empire subsequently became so rich and powerful, that at the relevant time, England, because we're talking really principally about England, at least until the 1700s, was a rich and powerful country. But of course, it it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was a not very densely populated island off the coast of um, continental Europe. The great powers for much of that period were, you know, France and Spain. And I think one way of thinking about it is that the reason that people other than the king or queen were important in England, and this became obvious in Elizabeth's time when they were resisting invasion by the Spanish and starting to establish their empire, was that the English monarchs actually needed cooperation from the barons and later from the City of London and, and as a source of finance and capability. Mm-hmm. And even the fact that they were a maritime power, the economic chain you need for an empire and a trading system and economy based on ships is much more complicated than you need for sort of peasant armies. So this tension between the absolute monarchy and resistance either from the barons or later from financiers and merchants is there and 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 finally that tension erupts and triumphs through the revolutionary English 1600s. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the importance of it. Straight line, no, but emblematic of a, a tension that's there throughout English history, yes. So really a statement of principles that most at least powerful Englishmen for centuries had held, you get it first expressed yes. in uh, in Magna Carta, and then it finally just erupts. That makes sense. Because when I heard Dr. Selwood say that, I, my, my entire American education kind of just collapsed. Like, wait, because we're taught, you know, from the earliest, or at least when I was in school, we were taught from Magna Carta straight through, not, again, not a direct line, but they influenced English Revolution, Glorious Revolution, American Revolution. Yeah, well, what tends to, to happen, of course, yeah, and you see this in the Declaration of Independence, what tends to happen is people look to the past to legitimise their, their action, particularly mm-hmm. if their action is revolutionary. And that might imply that there was a degree of continuity that didn't necessarily exist. 
But still, the issue was there. The issue of a limited monarchy as opposed to an absolute monarchy was certainly there. And, and to me, that's what 1215 and, and, and Magna Carta was, was more about rather than being a direct progenitor of mm-hmm. the revolutions of the 1600s, at the end of which you do have the concept of a limited monarchy firmly established. Sure. Turning to the restoration of Charles II after the revolution, when at least for a time, the Stuarts were kind of chastened and, okay, no more absolute monarchy. We will at least listen to parliament, at least to a certain degree. And yet the colonists in America, they had, or they started to develop a very unique identity before, but it it accelerated after, it seems, after the, the interregnum. You talked about in the book how they, the colonists saw themselves as what you might call transplanted Englishmen and that they believed they had the same rights, same liberties, same protections. And yet that view was not shared by Charles, by his ministers. Can you tell us a little bit about where Charles's ideas came from? Were they based in law that there is a distinction between Englishmen and English colonists? Was it based in law or was it just his opinion that, no, I'm, I'm not going to treat these people thousands of miles away, the same way I treat my subjects who might, you know, rise up and kill me like they killed my father? Well, that's a a big and and interesting and difficult question. I'd say this, that uh, from the point of view of the English monarchs, the first thing is that the Americans were their subjects. Mm -hmm. Now, to what extent uh, Charles and then uh, James, who became James II, really understood the implications of the charters and long established, even by the late 1600s, you're still talking about several generations, differences in the political customs of the American colonists and uh, people in, in Britain. I'm not sure I can precisely answer that, but I think that what you're dealing with is a situation where these things were rather fluid. They were generally not written down, mm-hmm. and different uh, monarchs and different people of importance in Britain could bring different perspectives to them. And, and as you sort of perhaps in, uh, allude to in your question, Charles II and James II would both had the misfortune of having been corrupted, I suppose, by their father and grandfather, because James I, back at, even when he was King of Scotland, actually, and not yet King of England, which he became in the first decade of the 1600s. He wrote a book on the divine right of kings. And this is really quite a curious concept in the English political tradition. And in some ways, it was made easier by the fact of the Reformation, the establishment of the Church of England, etc. Because until that happened, the Pope had sort of had a role in giving legitimacy to monarchs in Europe and continued to in Catholic Europe is very good for the papacy because it meant that people who wanted to be monarchs who were, were monarchs had to be nice to um, to the popes and to support them. Yeah. So you have this unusual, it's one of those discontinuities, I'd say, in the sense of the perception of the limited rights of kings. You want to see an extrapolated trend from Magna Carta through to, say, 1688, the English Bill of Rights and the English Revolution when the monarchy becomes limited. But this is an example where the line isn't straight mm-hmm. because... Uh, suddenly after the Reformation, the idea that there's no intermediator between the monarchs and the king the, the, and God, I mean, the Pope isn't playing that role anymore, that becomes more credible. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, Charles II and James II were very, particularly James II, were pretty dense when it came to understanding the lessons of the previous 80 years 
and still influenced by this um, notion of their grandfather that they actually had a divine right to rule and that parliament was just sort of an unfortunate hindrance mm. that they should try to work, work their way around. And that's one of the things when you look at the English history of the 1600s is just how slow the Stuarts were to learn that. And it kind of worked out well for England in the end because they ended up formalising the limited rights of the monarchy, but there was a lot of suffering in, on, the, on the way through. Yeah. Was that also part of French influence? Because if, if memory serves, Charles and James yes. both spent a great deal of time with Louis XIV, you know, the great yes. son king of France who had no limits on his power. So you, do you see that French influence there as well? Yeah. And um, particularly James II, he was very clearly, so he was overtly Catholic, which was mm -hmm. bizarre in, in England at the time, which had had a rocky road from the time it established the Church of England and trying to avoid the um, dominance by the Catholic powers and the resurgence of Catholicism. So that was a big problem. But he seemed to fairly overtly want to implement a Louis XIV style system in Britain. Mm -hmm. So that was a, um, a huge issue, particularly under his reign. Okay. And just curious, thinking about how the, the men in the colonies define themselves as Englishmen, was it through the process of creating these documents that they changed how they saw themselves from being the men of England to being Americans? Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting because so they, they would say, let's take this example. Even in the revolutionary period, and when Benjamin Franklin gave testimony to the uh, Committee of the House of Commons in 1766, 1766, right, 10 years before the Declaration, he said the following, more or less. He said, you don't have a right to tax us directly, but you've always had a right to regulate and tax our trade. Now, interestingly, that second bit was imposed by the English Republic, which we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. That's when they established a, an English system that said, you have to prefer our ports and, you know, use your, your shipping or our shipping, uh, and we have a right to tax your trade, but we don't seek to impose direct tax. But at the same time, did the Americans really believe that? That was the official line, but all the time through this period, they were smuggling massively. I mean, you know, Boston and the New, New Englanders were um, masters of smuggling. So they weren't actually paying a lot of the taxes, the, the trade taxes that the British were seeking to impose. So there was a bit of a gap between reality and the rhetoric there. But yes, the documents of the revolutionary period obviously helped to move people's, uh, at least their sort of overt thinking and what they're prepared to say and what they're prepared to articulate from being loyal subjects of Britain to being um, independent Americans. But, you know, I think all this goes back right to the founding of the colonies. I mean, you know that the, the establishment of the colony in Virginia, which is the first, was actually the third attempt, right? Mm. So Walter Raleigh had, had attempted to establish two colonies previously under Elizabeth. And on both occasions, everyone died or, or went to live with the Native Americans or some mix of the two. But just imagine when those three vessels arrived in 1606, or I think in, in um, what became Virginia, and the communications across the Atlantic you know, it would take many months for a message to get to Britain and, and, and back if it got back, if there wasn't a shipwreck. These were not state, I, I'm actually from Australia, but you know the, the colony that was established about three kilometres from where I'm sitting now was established as a state-funded project. These projects were private projects. Mm -hmm. So the idea that direct, strong direct control could be exerted from, from London over a colony where the communications were that bad, where the funding was private, 
where the only initially asserted right of the Crown to tax was to take 20% of the value of gold or other precious minerals, more or less on the Spanish model. You can imagine why in London, initially, these things would have been thought of as a matter of administration. There is a few people out there in the wilderness trying to make a go of it. Of course, they have to make their own decisions to a significant degree, and we can't do much about that. We'll trade with them, but they'll largely look after themselves. And what might have been seen just as administrative arrangements of necessity or convenience for these fledgling colonies on the edge of the wilderness, they still start to establish what, from the American context, becomes a political tradition, which is a condition, uh, a tradition of a significant degree of local independence. Hmm. So I, I think it's always important to look, as well as looking at the documents, to look at the practical realities of the way the system worked. And the fact is that when James II tried to start to impose more controls on the uh, American colonies at the time of the, just before the English Revolution, uh, Americans rebelled because they were already, 80 years before the Declaration of Independence, accustomed to a high degree of independence and resentful of an attempt by the English to increase control. Hmm. You brought up Benjamin Franklin. In the book, you had kind of a transcript of his conversation with Parliament or with the committee of Parliament. Where did you find that? Because I've studied the American Revolutionary period for a long time. I've never seen that before. Was that in Hansard or one of the British archives? Or have I just missed? I don't know. I don't know if you remember where you where you found that. I would have cited it in the book where exactly where I found it, but I, I don't recall off the top of my head. You know, it's very interesting. So I was determined when I was writing the book to work principally from primary sources, right? Mm-hmm. I, I personally, I find sometimes when academics write books and they're preoccupied with the historiography, it becomes a bit like they're just talking to their colleagues, right? I wanted to try to talk to a, a wider audience and to work from primary sources whenever possible. And the American primary sources are brilliantly organised, right? There are a couple of places, there are a number of places in the book where I refer to uh, a set of documents of of the Yale University Law School, Mm -hmm. for example. It's wonderfully organised. The case in Britain is completely different. And this goes back to what I talked about before, because they don't have a written constitution, the somewhat chaotic um, state of their, their constitutional documents and their rather fuzzy thinking about their constitution. And in my opinion, their failure to realise that the EU and Brexit was mostly a constitutional issue. But putting that aside, I I had to search all over the place for the British documents. I don't recall where I found that one in particular. Okay, yeah, I'll go back and look for where it was. But you got a sense of his personality in the uh, in his answers to these. And you can just kind of imagine these stuffy members of parliament. And there's this kind of weird American there who's, who's being a little bit sarcastic with them. And it was just it was it was excellent. Talking about personalities, I think especially in recent years here in the US and in the UK and probably in Australia as well, there's so much of an emphasis on personality when it comes to choosing political leaders and supporting political leaders, especially with certainly Donald Trump and also with Boris Johnson. And I wonder if you could give us some insight into how the personalities of the English Revolution specifically, thinking whether it's Cromwell or Charles I or William of Orange or James II, how those personalities influenced the policies that led to this incredible revolution that took place in Great Britain. Because I think so often we tend to, when we look at politics today, only focus on the personality. And, oh, this person seems nice, so I'm going to vote for him. That person seems mean, so I'm not going to vote for him. And 
we tend to think that's a new phenomenon, but I, I doubt that it is. So can you tell us a little bit about that kind of dichotomy between policy and personality to the extent that we know, obviously, uh, from the documents and from your research, how the two kind of played to create this revolution? That's an interesting question, because as you know from my book, I guess I don't emphasize so much the personalities. Right. I, I tend to have a view of history that at the end of the day, it's dr- driven more by big factors like changes in technology and economies, but also things like topography and um, communications and the like. But personalities can certainly be important in the short term. And if you think of what I'm saying, I guess I've already said here and I sort of say in the book, is that rather neglected first English revolution where Charles I is tried for tyranny and executed and a republic is established, which not many people seem to talk about, Mm. was the fact that um, Cromwell had become, had had emerged from being a, um, a successful, a very successful cavalry officer in the English Civil War to um, an immensely important English sort of statesman in the, in the Puritan parliamentary cause against the um, overreaching Charles I. Was that important? Yes, I think it was important. And he did have a unique authority because of his um, forceful personality and also his success in the war. So, yes, would the demise of Charles I have unraveled exactly as it did without him? Um, maybe not. Would there have been resistance between the Puritans, merchants, uh, entrepreneurial landowners, agriculturalists, which I won't go into, but there was a big class of those as a result of draining marshlands in the eastern part of England. Um, they weren't just all old stuffy people who'd inherited land. So there was this new entrepreneurial spirit in, in England at the time. There probably would have been a massive collision, but would have it unfolded exactly as it did. And certainly you can see the issue of personality much more clearly, as I've already implied, I guess, with James II and the Glorious or English Revolution, because he really was just obdurate. He wasn't responsive to what was happening around him. He wasn't responsive to the previous 80 years of English history. It's um, easy to imagine that that revolution might not have occurred if he'd been a bit uh, smarter and more attuned to his circumstances. So I think that's probably a a very good example of a difficult, fairly extreme personality type having been a catalyst to a major historical event. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was part of uh, William of Orange's personality that he came to England and signed uh, and issued the, the Bill of Rights? Or was that based in kind of his longstanding understanding of Dutch law that was then transplanted over to English law? Because I confess, I don't know much about William of Orange. I've, I've read about him a little bit. I teach him about him in my class, but it's really, it's mostly just, he came over, he replaced James and gave them the Bill of Rights. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. And there's a, a theme which I touch on in the book, but I don't expand on. But you can actually say that you know, liberalism, the idea of a constrained monarchy and the entrepreneurial classes being important to the success of a realm actually was initially established in, in Europe, in the Netherlands. And they had a very important role, even before William of Orange, in passing that flame across to England that then passed it to America. And it's even important in, in what I talked about before, this new class of entrepreneurial agriculturalists, because mm-hmm. they largely use Dutch technology and they changed, they traded with the Dutch a lot. But let me put it this way. William of Orange came from a political tradition where he was constrained. He was the stadtholder of several of the Dutch provinces, but it was sort of a federal model. It wasn't a model of, at that stage, an hereditary um, monarchy. So the concepts of a constrained monarchy and more dispersed power were natural to him. He'd been living his whole life with them. 
His principal interest in the English Revolution was securing a reliable ally for the Netherlands against, in particular, France, mm -hmm. who spent a lot of its time under Louis XIV trying to destroy the Netherlands. So he came very much from a perspective of wanting England to be politically stable and successful and able to support to be an ally, reliable ally of the Dutch. So that, that's interesting. He came from a, particular, a different political tradition that happened to meet the needs of the English moment perfectly. Mm. So he was used to the idea that he wasn't all powerful. That makes, yes. that makes sense. And he didn't have, you know, he didn't have any skin in, skin in the game. Unlike, right. you know, James II and Charles II, who kind of wanted to live up to granddaddy's um, doctrine of, you know, the um, unlimited monarchy, absolute monarchy. Uh, he had no interest in that. Mm. He just wanted a reliable ally. And did he remain stadtholder in the Netherlands or did he give those yes. up to become? He did. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Turning now to specifically to Parliament, you've mentioned several times already that Britain has an unwritten constitution and they rely much more than we do here in the States on convention and precedent. Everything is based on, well, this is how we've done it and with positive and negative outcomes. Here in the United States, you know, there are conventions, there are precedents, especially when it comes to court cases, but Speaking generally, would you say that precedent and convention work better with kind of a two centuries old written constitution or with no written constitution, but a thousand years of common but uncodified laws? Look, um, it's easy to feel that the American constitution has become too legalistic mm -hmm. and is too much in the control of lawyers and the courts. And to want to say that the sort of more organic, unwritten uh, British model has great um, pluses. But I'm not sure I can say that. Uh, maybe I'm biased because I'm a lawyer. But when I look at Britain, when I look at, for example, the recent, you know, I remember a few years ago, Johnson attempted to prorogue Parliament at a yep. crucial time in the, in the Brexit process. And a whole lot of people in Britain were surprised that the Supreme Court intervened and said, you can't do that. Now, there are a couple of things about that, right? Until very recently, the Supreme Court didn't exist in Britain. It's only 10 or 15 years old. 2009, and, correct? Uh, yeah, that might, be, think, that yeah. might be the year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was no judicial arbiter on the English or the British Constitution for most of the history. And some people saw this as a, at the core English British con principle, constitutional principle as being the supremacy of parliament, but uh, the prime minister having a residual power notionally on behalf of the monarchy, to engage in things like prorogation. And then the court basically found, well, hold on, but prorogation in this case isn't just for an administrative reason. It's to try to substantively suspend parliament from doing its job. And that contravenes the prime principle of the British constitution. The fact that there was so much um, uncertainty around how that a relatively simple issue like that would unfold suggests to me that um, there's a problem. And, you know, the whole Brexit scenario suggests to me there's a problem because, as I say, the British don't seem to have seen that as a constitutional crisis, and yet I don't see how you can see it in any other way, right? Basically, you had a situation where, by treaty, Parliament appointed another lawmaking body and another executive as supreme over the British, and that was done without a referendum. There was a referendum to join the common market, but not to give these immense supreme legal powers to the continent. If that isn't a constitutional issue, I don't know what it is, but, but the British don't see it like that. So I think the problem with the, the British model is that the thinking around their constitution is just way too fuzzy and way too uncertain, and they really would benefit from attempting to get it organised. Of course, there's not much 
political mileage in that would probably be divisive. So it's difficult to see a British government actually doing that because Mm -hmm. what would be in it for them? This concludes part one of our interview with James D.R. Phillips about his book, Two Revolutions in the Constitution, How the English and American Revolutions Produced the American Constitution. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation coming to you next week.